electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. You're listening to The Exchange. Here's today's show. Thank you, Brian. Hi, everybody. I am Kelly Evans, and this is The Exchange. Here's what's ahead this hour. A medical breakthrough, but at a price. The cost of Biogen's new Alzheimer's drug, $56,000 a year, may be too much for Medicare to handle. We look at the battle for access and the other treatments that could be on the way. And home prices soaring 15% in April from a year earlier, the biggest gain in the history of the Case-Shiller Index. Can this continue, and what role are investors playing in driving up prices? We'll explore that. And the rules are changing in rapid fire. The FTC backs off Facebook. The NCAA lets athletes get paid. And could a Bitcoin ETF be coming? Finally. We'll get into all of that today. But we begin with stocks posting gains once again. Christina Parts and Evelyn here with the numbers today. Christina? Yeah, well, we're only, what, halfway through the day, and we're seeing uh, just all indices showing some green, trending mostly higher. And it's a test right now to see if the S&P 500 and the NASDAQ can extend Monday's fresh record closes. Utilities and community services sectors are actually the only sectors trending lower today. And that's in part because the strength in the community uh, services sector on Monday, they saw Facebook surge after a federal judge tossed out Federal and state antitrust complaints, and you can see right now the stock is trending a little bit down, 1% lower. Although it's been roughly a fairly quiet day for headline news, the banks are in focus. You've got Morgan Stanley, Goldman Sachs, Bank of America, J.P. Morgan, all announcing dividend increases after they passed the Fed's stress test. Citigroup, and that's why I'm adding it to the mix, was the only one not to do anything on Monday. But don't forget, Citi already pays shareholders roughly 51 cents per quarter. It's done so since mid-2019. The stock yields just a little shy of 3%, making Citi the actual leader among the big six in that category. And last but not least, let's take a look at the action within commodities. Copper headed for its worst month since March 2020 on fears that China may tamp down on rising commodity prices. You can see it down almost 9% for the month. Overall, though, it is up over 20% for the year. So we'll end on a high note, Kelly. Yeah, we'll leave it there. We'll revisit this in a little while. Christina, thank you very much. Meantime, over in the world of stocks, the rally is losing some steam midday, but not before the S&P and NASDAQ did set new record highs. And with inflation fears starting to subside a bit, my next guest says that should support stocks and keep rates from rising. He says the 10-year Treasury yield could even dip to 1.2%. Joining me now is Jim Karen. He's the Global Fixed Income Portfolio Manager manager at Morgan Stanley Investment Management. Jim, welcome. Thank you, Kelly. Let's, Thanks for having me on the show. Uh, what do you think is the most out of consensus part of your call here? Because, you know, is it the fact that rates could go to 1.2 percent or is uh, we've seen so much of this already priced in lately with the 10 year dropping below one and a half? Um, I, I'm just curious where where kind of the next leg of the pain trade is right now. Yeah, so I, I think of it in terms of positioning. I, I think that most people have been set up and most forecasters are calling for higher yields. I'm not gonna argue whether yields are gonna go up or down. What, I'm, what I am gonna say though, is that it's a non-insignificant chance that 10-year treasury yields could get back down towards that 1.2% level. This doesn't necessarily mean that yields won't continue to move higher over the longer term or anything like that. But what it does suggest is that a lot of the inflation risk premia is starting to get taken out of the market 
at this point. What we have to understand is that in the second quarter, we can think of the second quarter as three peaks. We have peak growth, peak inflation, and peak policy stimulus, whether that's monetary or, or, or fiscal. We've gotten all this information at this point in time. What's the next catalyst then that could drive interest rates higher? If you've already gotten very big inflation prints, we already have the the idea that tapering is probably going to start to get you know announced to come along at some point in right. time. They're already talking about talking about it. Um, so what's the next catalyst that could drive rates a lot higher? In the absence of that catalyst, I could see interest rates drift a little bit lower or at least stay within this range for a longer period of time. Let me ask the question a little bit differently. Why would people want to own a treasury that, you know, at 1.2% when you could, you know, Goldman's forecast, which I think is is sort of less, it's more dovish than a lot of commentators today would kind of make you believe. So Goldman says core PCE is going to be 3% by the end of this year, 2% by the end of the next year. Okay, fine, but why does someone want to own a 10-year treasury at 1.2% in that environment? Does that not imply that the average inflation much further out is going to be dramatically lower than that? And what if that's wrong? Is that where you get higher rates? Yeah, I, I think at 1.2%, I, I would be I would be harder to own that in, at that point. But at these levels around 1.5%, I think it's, it's a little bit easier. Now, look, we're talking about a relatively small move here. But what we're also thinking about is a diversified portfolio and positioning. The thrust higher in interest rates took place really in the first quarter into the second quarter of, of, of this year. Since then, we've been moving sideways and we've even been drifting a bit lower. So if you think about it from owning fixed income to ballast your portfolio, your riskier asset portfolio that might include equities, for example, then I would argue that fixed income probably still has some opportunity to give you some yield and some potential return particularly if things go wrong like what if it, you know what if for example we do start to get this decline in inflation what if the fed becomes you know a little bit less patient and curves start to flatten down the back end is going to be the beneficiary of a lot of that as a lot of the inflation risk premium starts to leave the market so i think that's one of the reasons why back end rates can look a little bit attractive at these levels i'm not saying that that's true for the next 2 or 3 years right. what i'm saying is that over the next couple of months this might not be a bad place to might not be a bad place to be. So, if a final question as we as we talk through kind of what the catalyst it could be to change the mood of the market. And again, to reiterate, the mood of the market the past six weeks or so has been low rates. Don't worry about inflation. Growth is back. I, I would argue it has a bit of a pandemic feel to it, and maybe that's because of the sort of the Delta variant and everything that's going on there. It seems to me that people don't know if that one is going to play out ultimately in terms of some kind of additional wave where there's all of a sudden some precautionary measures that people are taking. And if so, we know what that trade is or if it's back to normal, if we move through it. The Delta variant kind of peters out and we're back to the value plays and the higher rates. I mean, that I wonder if that's kind of a little bit of the inflection point that we're at right now. Yeah, absolutely. Look, we have a payroll number coming up on Friday. It could be a big number. It's a 700,000 consensus. It could even be higher than that. Um, but essentially, I, I think you're right, Kelly, in saying that the pandemic is going to drive a lot of this. You know, and, and look, I, I'm not saying that, hey, here's an, an amazing opportunity. Bonds are cheap. Bonds are certainly not cheap. What I am saying, though, is that with all of the things that are going on in the world, whether we look at 
high yield spreads where they are. High yield yields are at at, at very very low levels right now. Um, there, there there is a ro- there is room for accidents to happen, right? There is room for a slowdown in the economy. There is room for the pandemic. There's a lot of room for things just to not go perfectly right. And I think markets today are priced a little bit for for uh, for perfection, mm-hmm. and that owning some fixed income at this point might not be such a bad opportunity to at least balance your portfolio. So 1.2% in the 10-year note certainly can happen. The range that I'm looking at is anywhere between 1.2 and 2%. So I I think that we're going to stay in that range for the rest of the year, but we might touch that lower level before we go higher. All right, Jim, thanks for joining us to make your case. Good to see you today. Jim Karen with Morgan Stanley Investment Management. Well, one place inflation is not cooling is in the housing market, where home prices across the U.S. are hotter than ever. The Case-Shiller Home Price Index for April rose at its fastest rate ever, up nearly 15 percent year on year. Phoenix, San Diego, even Seattle posted the biggest gains with prices in those cities surging more than 20 percent. And this is interesting as well. The broader, the FHFA index, also rising at its fastest rate ever. In fact, faster Then Case Shiller, which typically covers just urban areas. FHFA says prices in the country were up nearly 16% year-on-year in the month. The Mid-Atlantic and mountain regions showing the largest increases. Is all of this sustainable? Well, joining me now is Ryan Gorman. He's the president and CEO of Coldwell Banker. Ryan, it's good to have you. It's hard to believe the market's so much hotter since just the last time that we spoke. What's going to happen with prices from here? Well, it's anyone's guess where we go from here, but I'll tell you the fundamentals remain incredibly strong. So you're talking about some April numbers. There have even been some National Association Realtors sources in May numbers. Everything's very strong. We're really debating whether we're at the very high point or one step removed from that. The fundamentals, though, underwriting guidelines, cash offers, low speculation, low building. There's a lot of reasons to believe that there's going to continue to be a lot of buyers. Unfortunately, not enough sellers. We continue to have some inventory constraints. Building slightly there, though. You are echoing what we've heard from one of the top home builder analysts on the street who in the past month or two has told us he sees no reason why prices couldn't go up in the range of 30 percent year on year. I, I mean, could do you think we could get to price gains that steep? I think that's a, that's a tall order. That would certainly be about doubling some all-time peaks. However, if you're speaking to new home construction, that is a subset of these overall existing home numbers that you're quoting from uh, Case Shiller and from National Association of Realtors. So some of the new construction inventory, it's highly sought after. A lot of builders have even looked at shutting down their sales centers because, frankly, they don't have enough to deliver, whether there's lumber shortage, labor shortage, or land just can't get ready quickly enough. So on the new construction side, I don't know, he, he may be right. On the existing home side, I'd be shocked if we hit those kind of numbers, but I think demand will remain very strong. Even if it stays where we are, you know, you we go through another year of this, it's going to be a 30% increase over two years, which is, it's still just a sort of a shocking amount. I want to ask you about an issue I hear more and more concern about, which is the role of investors in the market and the extent to which they're driving up prices or elbowing out other buyers. In fact, Peter Bookvar, an economist and market strategist, spoke to this in his note today where he said, you know, it's a private equity yield grab that's in full force and the first time buyer, in his words, is getting screwed here. How how much competition do you see from buyers like these, from investors in the housing market? Well, certainly, like your last guest was mentioning, that uh, housing and real estate in general is a bit of an inflation hedge. There's certainly a lot of money flowing toward that. So you would think that with a lot of this institutional capital flowing into it, that some buyers will be squeezed out. I will say today, though, it's a very, very small percentage of the overall market. Yes, cash offers are very high. 
the vast majority of cash offers, even in multiple offer situations, are coming from individuals who are looking to occupy the home and own the home just as they would any other. So institutional buyers, I think, are going to continue to grow. Money's going to continue to flow into that category as well it should. And the multifamily category is very strong and has been for a long time. I think single family rental will continue to be strong. In terms of impact on the overall market, though, we're talking about percentage points, low single digits at this point, with some markets trending a little bit higher than that. So something to watch, but not as concerning as it might sound. Interesting. Well, and good to hear your perspective, because I know obviously you guys are right there on the ground where people are battling it out over these properties. So final question to circle back to a point you made is that, you know, there's not enough homes for sale. Um, I don't know if this is quite the way to put it, but how do you kind of cajole, coax, convince, whatever it, you know, I, I hear these anecdotes about people writing letters to homeowners asking them if they would consider listing their house, not even just homeowners who've already put their homes on the market. How do you get more supply onto a market where the people who I guess could be sellers feel like they don't want to sell and they don't really have any place they want to go? Certainly additional inventory is the solution to all that ails us at this moment. Now we talk about manufacturing inventory two ways, new home construction, which is lagging way behind where we need it to be. And despite high builder confidence, it's gonna continue to lag. We're missing four to 6 million homes that we need today. But on the existing home side, the biggest draw into the markets today is really price increases. Existing homeowners finding out what their home is currently worth, meeting with an agent, hopefully a cold banker agent, finding out what the value of their home is, and then realizing they could sell and move forward in their life. That's going to draw the most inventory on. In our cold banker survey a few months ago, for what was keeping the 20% or so of existing homeowners off the market who were contemplating selling, COVID was a very, very big concern. Almost 40% of those homeowners with vaccines prevalent across the country now, we're seeing those folks edge onto the market and hopefully that's gonna to continue to build that inventory. Still a seller's market, but we'd like to build that inventory. Well, I saw one of your signs come up around the block uh, the other day. And when I looked at the price it was listing for, I certainly caught my attention. So like you said, <laughs> I think uh, as people see what is happening out there, uh, we may get more supply on the market. Ryan, thanks as always for your time. Thank you. Ryan Gorman is the CEO and president of Coldwell Banker. Coming up, can the U.S. afford Biogen's newly approved Alzheimer's drug? We'll break down the numbers, the potential impact on Medicare, and speak to the most bullish Biogen analyst on the street. That's next. Plus, Facebook joining the Four Comma Club, closing above that trillion-dollar market cap for the first time yesterday after a federal judge dismissed the antitrust complaint against him. That fight is far from over, though. We have a lot more details ahead on The Exchange. This is The Exchange on CNBC. What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration, our teams provide global and local expertise our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. FedEx Ground service is also faster to more locations than UPS Ground. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, 
positively FedEx. Welcome back to The Exchange. Since the approval of its Alzheimer's drug, Aduhelm, Biogen shares are up about 19%. They are well off their initial pop of around 45% on the approval, as the efficacy and cost of the drug have come under scrutiny. For instance, if all of the nearly 6 million Medicare-eligible adults with Alzheimer's took Aduhelm, its $56,000 annual price tag could cost more than $334 billion. That's led to House committees to say they will investigate the approval and pricing of the drug. For more on this massive new market, CNBC's Bertha Coombs has a look at what coverage could mean for CMS and the private insurers. And to discuss what Agihel means for Biogen's bottom line, Michael Yee is an analyst at Jefferies with a buy rating and a $500 price target on Biogen. Bertha, let's kick it off with you. Yeah, you know, Biogen is saying maybe one in six is eligible. The Centers for Medicare and Medicaid has yet to issue coverage guidance for the drug. A spokesperson says that it's coming soon. But in the meantime, because it has to be administered by a clinician, Adjuhelm falls under Medicare Part B. So for most Medicare patients, that could mean paying 20% of the 56K out of pocket, not knowing if it will work. Dr. Joy Snyder says that means tough conversations, much as we saw with earlier Alzheimer's drugs. Some of them were pretty costly early on and I had a lot of conversations with patients that the benefit was small and the cost was high and they might do better to spend their money on something else. Well, it can cost thousands to figure out if you qualify for the drug because you'll need a positive emission tomography or PET scan to check for amyloid plaques. Biogen is contracted with Cigna for coverage. The insurer is setting strict approvals for people with amyloid with that amyloid criteria and pushing for follow-up data. It would be an a important opportunity would be for the payers and government to work together to create a registry so that we can actually track the initial patients that get this to truly document, are we seeing the benefits that we hope for. Biogen is touting its patient assistance programs, including an equity initiative with CVS Health aimed at low-income and black Hispanic patients to give them access. But Kelly, higher drug spending overall like this could cost all of us more in insurance premiums. That's what makes it such a thorny issue, Bertha. Thank you. And despite those challenges that Agihelm faces, Michael Yee says, well, it's still something that could benefit Biogen and benefit the patient population. He's bullish on the company and the launch of the drug. Michael, it's still possible there could be roadblocks, as Bertha was describing, if they don't sort of basically come out CMS and, and fully back it and endorse uh, usage of this drug, right? How high of a risk do you think that is? Well, it's, a, it's a great question. And thanks for having me. You know, there's a lot of controversy around the drug and the pricing, and I think it makes for a lot of great rhetoric. Ultimately, we do believe, like every single other cancer drug that's approved and every single important drug, that Medicare will move to approve and reimburse the coverage of this drug, particularly for the relevant patient population that the drug was studied for. What do you think the actual cost will end up being? You know, explain different sort of options here, possibilities in terms of how long people are on this, uh, whether it could pay for itself if it makes uh, or le lessens the need for some kind of end-of-life, long-term care uh, support, that sort of thing. Yeah, well, I mean, the first most important consideration is there is no real other alternative for these patients who, as you probably know, uh, have a devastating disease for the patients and for, for the families and the caregivers. So point one is 
there's really not a lot of alternatives and it's an important new therapy and the FDA moved to approve it in part because of this significant unmet need. Uh, point two, I think for folks is that purportedly there should be an expected 20 to 30% magnitude of slowing of the disease over time. That's what the FDA believes. That's what uh, certainly supporters of the drug believe and doctors believe. And therefore that should slow the progression of a devastating disease, which by the way, costs a lot of money over time. So there should be a pharmacoeconomic analysis around that. Biogen has been in discussion with payers and with folks uh, around that. And I would remind people that cancer drugs and other therapies that Medicare patients are on are $100,000, $200,000, doesn't seem to get much attention, often adds just a few months of life hmm. to these patients, and yet we're spending a ton of money on these drugs. So I think it needs to be put into context. Let me ask you about Eli Lilly. We had the CEO on with Meg Terrell earlier today. It was a fascinating discussion because he basically said their own Alzheimer's drug is headed towards the same process that the FDA approved Biogen's on, that he thinks theirs is the fastest acting one on the market, and that he thinks in order to be uh, efficacious, it really only has to be taken, in other words, paid for, for maybe less than a year. Is is more competition ultimately the answer here? Well, I, you know, I think uh, Lilly does bring an important consideration for the whole equation. And I think that's right. What we've seen before is in general, when you have more drugs on the market and more competition, there should be a free markets uh, dynamic. And these people will go out and compete for these patients and for on price and market share. And that's, I think, what people would want. So uh, to David Ricks at Lilly, I agree. His drug looks very promising. They got breakthrough therapy. They may file. There's questions around what data ultimately will be required for that. Uh, but I do think that more patients, uh, more drugs for these patients is going to be good for everybody. You know, he he made the uh, analogy with hep C when those first hit the market. We had a very similar discussion. They were extremely expensive, but over time, that price came down. There was more competition. And interestingly, very quickly, the discussion around the stocks, Gilead uh, and the others escaping me, became about their underperformance. Why aren't these companies doing better because they are ending hep C? And the answer was, well, they're ending hep C, so the treatment has literally its own shelf life. Well, you know, you've got a Biogen $500 price target. If these Alzheimer's treatments are effective, will we end up having the same kind of discussion or is that disease just so much different from hep C? Well, I think the Lilly dynamic, which we'll get to, I think down the line is interesting because they do use a finite therapy. In other words, they get it once, patients may be able to come off and how that will ultimately work for patients, I think is, is a big question. And I do believe that's a competitive threat. That said, I do uh, would remind that these are chronic therapies in general, certainly for Biogen, that they're supposed to be on for many years. It's not necessarily a curative therapy like hepatitis C. And there is a lot of patients that could benefit from that. So certainly Gilead created a lot of value in time over that period. The stock went up a few hundred percent. Biogen stock, we believe, will go up over that time as billions of dollars will come in and they will get a lot of share and use. And I think that will ultimately fund other drugs and other drugs coming for not only others, but for the pipeline uh, that could drive value from this stuff. All right. Michael Yee, thanks for joining us with your perspective on this today. Michael Yee of Jefferies. Still ahead, Bitcoin is moving higher after Kathy Wood's ARK Invest filed to launch an ETF that would track its performance. Despite today's gains, Bitcoin is still down nearly 50% from its highs back in April. Can Kathy Wood save crypto? We'll discuss that ahead. Don't forget, you can watch us live using the CNBC app anytime. We're back in a moment. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, 
No one wants happy customers more than you do. So you need a business partner just like you. Like FedEx, who understands your passion for serving your customers because they have the same commitment towards you. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. What's more, FedEx Ground is faster to more locations than UPS Ground. Trust FedEx for timely deliveries. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx. Welcome back to The Exchange. I'm Eamon Javers, and here's your CNBC News update at this hour. The Supreme Court removing a key roadblock for a billion-dollar natural gas pipeline. The high court ruling that Penn East Pipeline can use eminent domain to seize land for a 116-mile pipeline between New Jersey and Pennsylvania. Now, the high court also ruling that the federal government can indefinitely detain certain immigrants. Over the dissent of three liberal justices, the Supreme Court ruled that some immigrants are not entitled to a hearing on their release while the cases are still being evaluated. And the Delta variant of coronavirus is fueling increasingly deadly outbreaks across Asia. The Red Cross says Indonesia is nearing catastrophe conditions with patients overflowing into hospital corridors. And tonight on the news, efforts to contain the Delta variant here in the United States and a look at how effective the Johnson & Johnson vaccine is against the more contagious type of COVID-19. Kelly, back over to you. All right, Eamon, I'll see you next hour. Thank you so much. Tech's antitrust win, the next buzzy IPOs, and paying students to play. All that and more is ahead in Rapid Fire. And tonight, be sure to watch Buffett and Munger, a wealth of wisdom. 8 p.m. Eastern time here from the Oracle of Omaha himself and his five-decade partner, Charlie Munger, as they share stories of their friendship, the deals they've done over the years, and what makes Berkshire so special. Join Becky Quick for that conversation tonight, 8 p.m. Eastern time. I know I'm not missing it. Welcome back. Let's catch you up on a few stories that should be on your radar right now. It is time for Rapid Fire. Here to help break down the headlines, we welcome Bob Bassani, Seema Modi, and Michael Yoshikami, the founder and CEO of Destination Wealth Management, joining the fray with us this afternoon. Welcome, everybody. First up, it's a win for big tech. The FTC's antitrust complaint against Facebook and the entire case brought by 48 state attorneys general dismissed by a federal court. The court ruling the FTC failed to prove Facebook's monopoly power. That news sent shares surging yesterday, propelled Facebook's market cap above a trillion dollars for the first time. It's giving up some of those gains today, but it isn't the end of the FTC's case. The court said they have 30 days in which to shore up weaknesses in their argument and maybe resubmit it. Bob Bassani, I'll start with you. Thoughts on the implications of this ruling? There has been a problem for years defining what a monopoly is in the modern age. It's not like the old way. Remember Standard Oil? Remember AT&T? So you had a company. They gained control in this case, in Standard Oil's case, of a particular commodity. And then they started raising the prices. Well, number one, social networking, they don't have a monopoly. Number one, they don't control the entire business. And number two, nobody's raising prices. Even with Amazon, for example, not only are they not raising prices with 50% of the retail, they're driving prices down. So people have been trying to redefine what a monopoly is. And obviously, in this particular case, the court was not convinced. Michael Yoshikami, to quote New Street, uh, I think this is New Street. Yeah. But in any case, the ascension of Lena Khan, as they're saying, uh, to head the FTC is what they think really puts investors on notice 
that big changes are coming. She's the one who wrote sort of the woke antitrust, as it's jokingly called. But this effort to find a new paradigm, a new framework in which to evaluate these companies' market power and potentially do something about it. Do you agree that this is now her uh, sort of ascension more than anything, even more than what we heard this week uh, from this judge, more important to bear in mind if you're investing in these big tech companies? Yeah, I think so. I think the ruling that, that came down just the other day, I think that certainly is going to be um, refiled by the government, I'm sure, with hopefully a more pointed case. But I think you're absolutely right. The new leadership at FTC, uh, as well as, frankly, Mark Zuckerberg just flat out admitting regulation is necessary. I mean, how often do you really see a company that is actually accused of being a monopoly actually come out and say, yeah, we need to be regulated more. We need better rules. So I think that's going to happen one way or the other, whether it's through actions by Elizabeth Warren or the FTC or mm -hmm. the Biden administration, whatever it may be, I think they're not out of the woods yet. Big tech needs to be aware uh, that they need to be but careful about using their powers in a way that really looks to squash the competition and uh, uh, impact uh, choice among users. Michael, would you tell people, investors, to shy away from owning these stocks, though, in the meantime? No, I don't think so. Uh, I, think, I think, Kelly, that these are still names that have tremendous amount of uh, profit opportunity. Um, if you look at what's happening in terms of the engagement across the internet, people are communicating more and more. I don't know if that's necessarily a good thing, uh, <laughs> but uh, I think you're going to continue to see tremendous demand for these companies. I think more so a concern for Facebook is Apple's privacy uh, privacy changes. That's more of a concern to me than the antitrust concerns in terms of what it's doing to advertisers for Facebook. Yep. It's already starting to see an impact, as Facebook has mentioned. Yeah, absolutely. Fair enough. Before we leave this uh, discussion, Seema, I just want to mention as well this New Street point where they think the first thing to watch in terms of how this new regime at the FTC might work under Lena Khan is actually the Amazon MGM deal, because that's one that wouldn't under normal kind of traditional approaches be blocked, but could be a test of whether there's a way of saying they might not be in the same industry, all of those kind of traditional metrics, but this is still something that basically shores up big tech's market power. Listen, maybe they'll use Facebook's playbook and say just because we're big does not mean we hold a monopoly, but that will certainly be one important story to watch. I think the market's interpretation, to Michael's point, uh, is that this significantly reduces the potential of a Facebook breakup. So does this apply to other companies like an Amazon? Uh, will be something to see. That's a great point. As we watch Facebook shares, again, now the fifth uh, big tech company to be worth more than a trillion dollars in market cap. Moving along, the IPO market is not slowing down for the summer. A quick roundup of this busy week, Didi Global is going to price shares at the top of its indicated range. That values the Chinese ride-hailing giant at over $67 billion. It starts trading tomorrow on the NYSE. Duolingo, the language app, they're filing to go public as their revenues have doubled year on year. Allbirds is set to file an IPO, which could value them around $2 billion. And by the way, the second quarter this year was already the busiest quarter for IPOs since 2000, raising nearly $40 billion. Michael, one kind of general question for you is, is all of this to you a frothy environment? I mean, you know, it, are, do we look at this as a sign of, of health? And, you know, wow, look at how, how far we've come since the pandemic or a sign that there's just too much liquidity sloshing around? Uh, well, there's a lot of liquidity, uh, and I think that liquidity is going to be spent by companies in terms of acquisitions, and certainly through um, uh, the uh, special acquisition companies, you're going to continue to see tremendous numbers of deals being made. Markets are at all-time highs. This is, this is typically what happens, right? There's a frenzy, and so everyone just wants to pile into the frenzy. Uh, Kramer in his uh, show, I think yesterday, if I'm not mistaken, was talking about DD, which is the 
ride-sharing company in China. So there are some companies that, that have some fundamentals that seem pretty reasonable. But investors need to be careful about these names because we are moving into an IPO market where the markets are at all-time highs. And you really can't actually dial up a more bubblish sort of scenario than that. So you need to be very, very careful if you're buying these stocks. Seema, <laughs> aside from the fact that I was surprised Allbirds, Allbirds is only going to be a $2 billion company, what, what stands out to you about the current crop of filings? Well, it's not just the IPO boom, but the average performance of IPOs so far this year. Just take a look at the Renaissance IPO ETF. It's flat on the year, all right? It's up 3% compared to the S&P 500, which is higher by 14% this year. Some of the prominent names that we talk about a lot, Oscar Health is down about 13% in the last one month. What also stands out to me, uh, Kelly, is the performance of the private equity firms, number of them that were pre-IPO investors in a lot of these names, like a Carlyle, a Blackstone, uh, KKR. They're actually uh, having a very very strong year, up about 49%. So there's different ways to play this IPO boom, but just uh, interesting to look at the individual players. Yes, and Bobby, you've been making that point as well, which is that a lot of the gains have basically come from people taking the companies to market, not necessarily after they've hit the public. Yes, uh, and if you look, the actual first day gains for IPOs this year are very robust. They're 24% was the average gain on an IPO. The problem Kelly, is the, most of the gain is on the first day. 22% of it was on the first day. Only a couple percent was on the day, what we call the aftermarket, yes. the day after. And on that very right. first day, you and I have talked about this. This is when the people can't get in. You're buying in on the first day. Stock prices at 10, opens at 15. You're just an average viewer of CNBC. You're buying in at 15 somewhere, and your aftermarket return isn't nearly as great as those people who were able to buy it uh, from, the initial, from the company initially. So that, that's the problem. But Michael really had it right. There are two things that drive IPOs. First is the state of the market, and we're at new highs, so there's a plus. And then liquidity, and there's oceans of liquidity to buy. And there's all of these terrific brand-name companies that are still trying to cash in. Look at this. I've got Robinhood, Warby Parker, Chobani, Flipkart, even Dole Food might go public. Good heavens. Remember them? <laughs> in the second half of the year. There's a, I've got a long list here that we'll talk about Krispy maybe tomorrow Kreme. about this. Yeah, it's, it seems like every day yeah. is filled with more offerings, and, and there is no slowdown for the summer. All right, speaking of offerings, Kathy Wood is preparing to launch a Bitcoin ETF, but she's going to have to get in line because according to a filing with the SEC, her ARK Invest is creating an exchange-traded fund to track Bitcoin. But so far, there have been eight other Bitcoin ETFs filed with the SEC, so ARK B wouldn't necessarily be the first to market. That honor would go to Van Eck, and Bitcoin is still more than 40% off its highs. The past three months, though, her flagship ARK Innovation Fund have done a complete turnaround. Seema, they're now 35% off of their, I think, May lows. Right. So what, what's going to happen here with these Bitcoin ETFs as this race to go public heats up? You know, I think this is all just a PR stunt here because it seems like all the Bitcoin believers have had to coalesce together in the last in the last couple of weeks to instill confidence in investors <laughs> uh, within the cryptocurrency space. One way to do that, launch a Bitcoin ETF. But it really comes down, it really starts and stops with the SEC. There have been a number of players, including the Winklevoss twins, who have tried and failed with getting a Bitcoin ETF to market. So we'll see if Kathy Wood has what it takes. But uh, there are a number that are in the wings waiting to do the same. Michael, when your clients you know, ask you for advice on cryptos, I'm sure they do. Do you tell them, you know, kind of, you know, it's at your own risk? Do you have a recommended vehicle that they should use to invest in it? Would you be interested in something like a Bitcoin ETF once it's uh, available? Short answer, I would not be interested in that. I agree with Seema. This is basically marketing is what this comes down to. 
Um, you know, if you want to buy Bitcoin, just go to Coinbase. I'm not sure exactly why you need an ETF. You can diversify yourself. But when people ask us about Bitcoin, we basically tell them, how much money can you afford to lose? Uh, and if you can afford to lose everything, then that's the amount you invest in Bitcoin. Because Bitcoin, we really don't know what the real value is going to be in a year or two or three years down the road. And just because Kathy Wood and, and God bless that fund family, but just because they say they're uh, having an ETF and Bitcoin bumps up, that just shows you how volatile the market is. If just another entrant comes in, but it has a really uh, visible name and all of a sudden Bitcoin bumps up. So uh, it's not something that we're investing in. We don't recommend people invest in. I know that's very controversial, but, you know, we're, we're the kind it's, of firm that likes to help people stay retired. It's less controversial after a 50 yeah. percent drop. That's for sure. Bob, we'll give you that's a quick right. last you word know, here. I do. Look, I want to look, look, go ahead. I, let me just say this. Why did Jay Clayton, the old head of the SEC, pass on a Bitcoin ETF? Because he was worried about fraud and manipulation, and he wanted more exchange of the of the crypto asset market, the, the exchanges themselves. Why is Gary Gensler punting on the Bitcoin ETF so far? Because he's concerned about fraud and manipulation, and more, he wants cover. He wants more regulation of the Bitcoin exchanges. You're, this is selling Bitcoin to grandma. They're not going to approve that unless they get clear indications they've got more control of the market. And Bitcoin going from 66000 to 33000 in two months, that does not help anybody's case for a Bitcoin ETF. He's going to punt in August on the Van Eck one again down the road to have more time to evaluate All things. All right. You heard it here first. Great discussion. And before we go, I just want everybody's thoughts here, as this is a historic week for colleges and for college sports. Uh, the NCAA is rushing to offer a proposal to allow athletes in all 50 states to profit from their name, image, and likeness as soon as July 1st without forfeiting their eligibility to play. It comes just days ahead of laws set to take effect across the country that would make it legal for college athletes to make money. And don't forget, the Supreme Court sided with student-athletes last week, ruling that the NCAA could provide them with unlimited education-related compensation. So quickly, very curious about how everybody feels about this one, even though, Bob, I'm not sure there's any investment implications. So give us your societal <laughs> ones. Well, look, this is this is not necessarily about college sports. The NCAA is the only one against this, and they're against it because they're afraid of losing control, and the whole thing's going to turn into a giant pay-for-play scheme. And it is. What it really is about is the monetization of virtually everything. What do you see next? High school kids are going to want to monetize their high school sports. You're going to have third graders monetizing their NFTs because they're <laughs> TikTok stars. Monetization of everything is where this is going. I think it's kind of appalling, but you can see the trend here and even the NCAA isn't going to stop it. Seema? I think they'll be very successful with their efforts to monetize their brand because just look at the following they have on social media. Some of these NCAA players, like for example Jordan Bohannon, a basketball player at University of Iowa, he has more followers on social media than a lot of the NFL players. So I think they're ready to go and they have that platform already uh, that they're using on social media. That's a great point. It's actually the same point John Fort was making earlier. We were just kind of chatting about this. I, I, because, Michael, I, want every, I, I, I need everybody's take on this issue. I, I changed my own mind. I mean, one day I think it's great. The next thing I, day I think it's terrible. What does Yoshikami say? Uh, it doesn't matter whether you think it's good or bad. It's going to happen. I mean, the <laughs> bottom line is all the money can't go to the NCAA. Uh, it's going to be great for the athletes. It's going to stop illegal or at least reduce illegal uh, payoffs under the table. And for companies like Coca-Cola, McDonald's, Pepsi, these are the kind of companies that are going to be all over these athletes. And and Bob's right. We could very well have a poster child in third grade 
uh, as the next LeBron James um, advertising uh, McDonald's Happy Meals. I just hope it doesn't ruin his life. That's all I'm saying. Maybe he is the next LeBron. Maybe he's not. But we're going to have a whole lot more coverage of this story all week as this plays out. Guys, thank you very much for now. Uh, great stuff today. Michael Yoshikami joining our Seema Modi and Babasani for Rapid Fire. And coming up, take a look at today's mystery chart. Shares are down nearly 5% over the past month, but the company got an upgrade today on its under-the-radar fizzy success. I bet you can't guess it. And it's next on The Exchange. Welcome back. Let's get you a quick check on markets. We're actually near the lows of the session when the Dow was up just 16 points. We were up nearly 200 at the highs, so we've definitely come a ways off that. Slight gains for the Dow and S&P today. Two-tenths percent gain for the Nasdaq. You can call it the strongest, but again, even with a slight levitation, enough to set some new intraday highs. Here are some of the movers this hour. We are watching shares of Kerouac Dr. Pepper. This was our mystery chart. It's in the green today after Wells Fargo upgraded the stock to overweight, hiked its price target to 42. It's at 35 right now. And they're highlighting the launch of Dr. Pepper Zero this past March. They're saying demand for low-calorie carbonated drinks continues to go up, and this has been a surprising beneficiary with still more room to run. So KDP today. Meantime, Goldman is is naming GE a top idea in the large cap space. They're saying the stock is poised to benefit from what it says is one of the best backdrops for industrials over the past decade. Goldman noting moderate inflation is generally good for cyclicals. GE is the most rate sensitive stock in their coverage, and they think the uh, rates will end the year at 1.9%. So again, if you feel confident in that rates call, they say GE is the place to go. It's up 2% today. And Bank of America is naming FedEx a top transport pick, saying shares are trading at a discount, and there are actually some some good tailwinds for the company. They're reiterating a buy rating, a 372 price target, which is 26% upside from here. For more on that call, you can head over to cnbc.com pro. And still ahead from ketchup to aluminum cans, pandemic-related supply chain disruptions have caused major shortages. With gun sales at record levels, we're going to look at the ammo shortage next. Stay with us. Welcome back. Vista Outdoors and Smith & Wesson both posting huge gains so far in 2021 after gun and ammo sales reached record levels last year. But all these buyers are leading to a shortage. Josh Lipton joins us now with that story. Josh? Kelly, we know Americans are buying a lot of guns, but finding ammunition for those guns can be tough. I spoke with Manny Circa, who has owned a gun store in New Jersey for about 40 years. Yes, he has seen ammo shortages before, but never, he says, like this. The ammunition market is dried up. There's virtually no ammunition available, and that hurts our range business because people don't have the ammunition to shoot number one. Number two, the pricing structure for what is available is off the wall. The prices are phenomenal. Now, one big reason for this challenge, the historic run on guns we are seeing. If sales continue at the current pace, analysts think we could actually break the all-time record for gun sales set just last year, an estimated 22.8 million, according to research firm Small Arms Analytics. That incredible surge has put additional pressure on ammunition manufacturers. They already had to supply millions of existing gun owners. Now, there are millions of new gun owners. Too. I checked in with Chris Metz, CEO of Vista Outdoor. That's a leading ammunition manufacturer. He is literally running his three ammo factories 
24-7 right now. Still, Vista's order backlog in the multiple billions and growing. So when will ammo supply finally catch up with demand? Right now, Chris Metz tells me it is impossible to say. Kelly, back to you. We will ask our next guest. Josh, thank you very much. For more on record gun sales and ammo shortages, let's bring in Stephen Gutowski. He's the founder and editor of firearms publication, The Reload. Stephen, it's good to have you. When do you think this market normalizes, so to speak? I think it's probably going to be several years. Um, you know, I did a recent story where I spoke with uh, uh, officials from um, Winchester and Hornady Ammunition, uh, and they both have backlogs that stretch out two and a half years. So it's going to be a long time until this thing normalizes and you're going to have the stock that people are used to seeing from several years ago. You know, I read a bunch of the stats last year about how much gun sales had increased. Uh, I think it was like a 40 percent increase in background checks that the FBI ran in 2020. Are we still increasing over those numbers or are we starting to taper off? Yeah, we're still increasing right now, actually. Uh, we, we've seen um, 8.5 million uh gun sale related background checks so far in 2021, which is actually up from 8.1 million during the same time period in 2020. So sales aren't slowing down at all. What's driving all of this? Where specifically are these, uh, is this demand coming from? Well, uh, I think 2020's demand was driven by a number of factors, including, you know, the uncertainty surrounding the pandemic, you know, there were meat shortages, prisoner releases, uh, police force reductions. Um, you had, uh, police brutality incidents that drove uh, minorities to buy guns. You had uh, widespread rioting that drove a lot of people to purchase guns uh, last summer. Uh, and then you also have a political aspect to it as well with uh, President Biden pushing for new gun bans. That drives a lot of people to the gun store to try and buy guns they, they fear could be banned over the next couple of years. So is it Smith & Wesson I just read that had a billion dollar quarter? So this is now turning into, you know, major profits for some of these gun makers. And the issue itself is so politically loaded. I, I just wonder what should we expect from Washington as gun sales increase? And I think I read the other day that gun ownership in the country has hit something like 40 or 50 percent of Americans, some, some very high number that really shocked me. What kind of re uh, reaction do you expect down the road politically? Yeah, well, I mean, I think politically right now, things are fairly stable on the issue, actually, because uh, of the divided nature of Congress at this point. And, uh, you know, it's likely that that's going to continue uh, for the foreseeable future at the federal level, at the very least. So I don't think there's going to actually be any really significant changes outside of some of the executive actions that uh, President Biden has taken, which could affect uh, millions of, of gun owners. So it's not insignificant, but I wouldn't expect to see any new uh, sweeping legislation on on guns coming, and w which means, I mean, I'd expect these companies to continue to sell uh, a lot of guns uh, at the current, uh, you know, way things are. Yeah. Quick final question. What's the main reason for the ammo shortage and, and how, are, what, how are people dealing with it? Yeah, I mean, I think the main problem is when you add you know, 8.5 million new customers in an industry like ammo manufacturing, it's difficult to meet that new level of demand uh, when you have some of these companies have been around for 200 plus years uh, and they're, you know, mature manufacturing companies. You can't just expand demand 100 or supply 100 percent overnight. It yeah. takes a long time to build out the infrastructure to do that. And that's why you see uh, predictions that these this shortage could last for years uh, into the future here. It's not going to be solved by, you know, the, the next big buying surge, which will be uh, in the fall. So, you know, I, 
yeah. people are just going to basically have to get by with what they have for now. And it's going to be uh, something that affects shooting ranges, but yeah. probably something that positively affects both uh, ammo manufacturers and gun manufacturers uh, going forward. Stephen Gutowski of The Reload, thank you for joining us to explain this trend. We really appreciate it. That does it for The Exchange. You've been listening to The Exchange. Make sure you're subscribed to get each episode every day, same time, same place. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. So you need a business partner just like you. Like FedEx, who understands your passion for serving your customers because they have the same commitment towards you. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. What's more, FedEx Ground is faster to more locations than UPS Ground. Trust FedEx for timely deliveries. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx.